Hi friend, it's 2020. If you're anything like me, this year has been hard. Have you had days that feel confusing, disappointing, or just totally overwhelming? Especially in times like these, and really no matter what life stage you're currently in, do you find yourself looking for something real? Do you ever stay up late at night wondering if there's more to this world than the chaos in your social media feed? Maybe like me, you wonder about things like restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. And truth, I am on an imperfect journey of pursuing Jesus Christ and what it looks like to find those things in a relationship with Him. It's a journey I committed to years ago when I dedicated my life to following Christ, and it's a journey I invite friends to explore with me, even if, and honestly, especially if you're just not so sure about Jesus. So for those who are wandering, wondering, skeptical, or just need some encouragement, we all need encouragement these days, don't we? This podcast is for you. Please come along with me as we journey together towards finding something real. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. I'm really glad you're here today. You are listening to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Deep Faith Questions series. And today, well, it's a very special episode for a number of reasons. In fact, can I just tell you that today's episode is going to go down as one of my all-time favorites? Um, That's for a number of reasons. First, um, and this is part of it, I'm super excited to share that if you are signed up for my email list, I just, and by just I mean today, and by I, I mean my <laughs> my assistant Tara. <laughs> Tara, thank you. You're amazing. But we just sent out a free gift that complements everything we're going to be talking about over the next few months. It's a PDF that you can download called The 7 Deep Questions You or a loved one are asking about faith. And it's a resource meant to start simple conversations about faith and God. And it's great because it's for anyone, no matter where you are at in your, in your journey. Um, I guess I just believe that many of us, no matter what your background may look like, we're longing for deeper things in our lives right now. Or maybe we're being faced with the uncertainties of life in a way that we've possibly never considered. And I think many of us are open to or wanting to talk about faith with someone, and we just sometimes don't know where to start. And I guess this is something I know from personal experience, that sometimes people are afraid to talk about faith or religion, like it's as bad as talking about politics during an election year. We are afraid we're going to say the wrong thing but we desire to know more and or sometimes we just need some ideas of where to begin. And I remember the first time I spoke with someone outside of church about Jesus. I was probably, my mom says about four or five years old, but I do remember this. Um, I don't know exactly, but I remember getting on a metro bus with my mom and my little brother. And as I recall, the bus was pretty empty But I remember there was this one guy sitting probably about 20 feet away from us. And I remember he didn't look very happy. And this I don't know for sure. But in my memory, I believe my motivation was to cheer him up. 
and remind him there was a savior that loves him, that died for him, that rose again for him. And so I said, anyone here who loves Jesus, raise their hand. And he didn't say anything. In fact, no one on the bus said anything. And so I said it louder just in case that man hadn't heard me. And I said, anyone here who loves Jesus, raise their hand. And when that guy again didn't respond, I turned to my mom, heartbroken, because as a little girl, I was so, honestly, I was so in love with Jesus. And I couldn't believe there were people who didn't know him. And I said loud enough for anyone to hear, Mommy, why isn't anyone raising their hands? Now, (laughs) let me tell you right now, that's not the advice I'm going to give you in the list of questions I'm sending out. I'm not an expert in sharing faith with people. (laughs) but my lack of expertise doesn't disqualify me for addressing hard questions because if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, I don't believe there's anything more important than sharing him with the world. Nothing more important. So despite uh, a history of probably botching it over and over I still love to talk about faith questions with skeptics, seekers, and believers because that passion I had as a young girl to tell others who are sad or hurting or still haven't found what they're looking for about the real satisfying thing that Jesus offers, that's still there for me today. And since sharing faith as a little girl, I know I've added a few things to my my tool belt, if you will. I've studied the Bible. I've read quite a few books. I've listened to different teachers, learned a few things about sharing faith, as well as human psychology. But I have to tell you this. Hard conversations start with a willingness to do it. They start with asking questions and listening. They start with love. And usually when I'm having a conversation with someone about faith that I I don't know what they believe, I'm praying in my head for some major Holy Spirit intervention. So if you're not on my email list and you're interested in those faith questions, please go ahead and head over to my website. That's JanelleWood.com or FindingSomethingReal.com and look for the text at the top of the page that says something like deep questions. Go ahead and sign up and you'll get your copy of that to go along with um, this series and also some occasional podcast updates and encouragement that you'll receive um, once in a while. Since I've just told you how much I love having conversations about faith in Jesus Christ with people I love, I think you'll know why, uh, in a little bit, why this this particular episode is so special to me. Um, My Dutch exchange daughter, Lika, joined me for this conversation. And Lika, if you ever listen back to this, I just want to say, I'm so thankful for you and for God bringing you into my life. And I know I've shared that with you before, but... I just wanted to say it again. And to Josh White, who shares his heart and reckless abandon for the gospel in this episode, thank you for being a self-described weirdo slash amateur. We didn't really discuss it during this podcast conversation, but when we were in Cannon Beach a few uh, weeks back, you introduced the audience um, and me to the concept of amateur meaning to be a lover of something. And it's evident that you are a lover of Christ and sold out for him. And it's so refreshing and encouraging to not only listen to your wise words, 
which I have, by the way, multiple times. There's a lot of quotable material here. (laughs) But also to know that you're boldly proclaiming the good news. Thank you. And I'm praying for supernatural strength and increased spiritual harvest for you because these times are crazy, and I know more than a few people are feeling discouraged or weary during this time. And finally, to you, friend, today's listener, I pray this episode blesses you as it's blessed me as I've been preparing it. Um, I know it's a thick, rich episode. Uh, You may need to pause it halfway through. I decided not to break it into two separate episodes this time, partly because uh, (laughs) I didn't want to and partly because I just felt like it flowed better as one full episode. So um, you may... You may find that you want to listen all of it uh, to all of it at one time, or you may want to break it up. But I just have to tell you that what Josh shares about um, Jesus—it's so—it's um, powerful. It's powerful, and I hope your eyes are open to the overwhelming love that Christ is offering you today. Before we dive into our conversation today, I want to introduce my special co-host. She is one of my favorite people, and I love being able to call her my Dutch daughter and my firstborn exchange child. (laughs) Uh, She is a creative, a travel, and music lover, and she is currently in college for event and leisure management. Did I get that right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Lika, thank you for letting me talk you into being here today and for joining all the way from the Netherlands. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to be here. I love you. Um, well, friend, I'm very excited to welcome today's guest on the podcast. I probably already shared a lot of this in the intro, but he's a father, a husband, a pastor, a musician, an avid reader, a writer, a self-described amateur, currently dabbling in both boxing and carpentry, I believe. And I don't know exactly what he's doing today, but welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast, Josh White. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. Um, I'm thrilled, really. I mentioned on this podcast that my family gets away in July and Cannon Beach Christian Conference Center has become a really special place for us. In fact, Lika and I went there one time. You remember that, Lika? Yes. (laughs) For a girls weekend. For a girls weekend. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, my family, we usually go there during the month of July. We usually go there a little earlier in the month. And it's become our tradition as a family just to get away. My husband's a school administrator and it's his break. And um, the first couple of years we went, there was this very dynamic a speaker I'd never heard before, who was just so bold and unapologetically, um, what I would call reckless abandonment in the way he talked about the gospel. And his name is Luis Palau. And I found out later that he was super uh, well known around the world. (laughs) And but he was so down to earth and bold. And he's in his 80s. He I think in the last year was, or a year and a half ago, diagnosed with stage four cancer. And we heard that he was going to be back at the Cannon Beach Conference Center. So we changed all our plans so we could go hear him speak. And we knew that maybe he wouldn't be able to make it. Um, But then COVID happened 
then we thought he was going to be there and then he he wasn't going to be there at the last minute and I have to say we went to the conference center this year I felt kind of discouraged kind of disappointed kind of like what is going to happen here and I was so um I, I guess refreshed by the speaker that they had instead <laughs> and who was there for the whole um, week. And that was you, uh, Josh. Um, you also have a reckless abandon when it comes to sharing the gospel and your love for Jesus. And um, it was so refreshing to come away from the chaos of time um, spent in lockdown and uh, looking at news headlines to just focusing on the message of the gospel um, as you shared the words of Christ from the cross. And so I was so excited to uh, chat with you, and we had a couple small conversations, um, but it was just what I needed. Um, and so I was very excited that you agreed to come on the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm not Luis Palau, but he is a good friend, so I, I'm, I'm able to assimilate a lot of what he says. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, yeah. you know, it, it was just what I needed to hear. Yeah. He, he is an he is an amazing uh, down to earth. I mean, for I mean, he essentially is the Billy Graham of of Central and South America, and just a, um, yeah. It, it's uh, I had him preach actually at the opening, our Good Friday service for the grand opening of our church, our church building in Southeast, and I mean, here he is in the middle of like the most probably one of the most bohemian neighborhoods in America, and he's preached in a very clear and simple gospel message. And, you know, everyone says that won't work in Portland. And what do you know, you know, whatever, like a hundred people gave their life mm -hmm. to Jesus that night. <laughs> so wow. yeah, he's, he's, he is an amazing person. It was sad to not be able to spend time with him uh, for me as well this year. Yeah. And I think I remember you saying you work with him and his ministry quite a bit though. So do you guys get to see each other or have you been able to see him? I have since COVID. I mean, we talk on the phone quite a bit, and I actually just talked to Kevin, his son, who's now the uh, CEO of uh, Palau Ministries. Um, and um, yeah, they, uh, I mean, I travel. I usually travel with them. I'm, I feel like I do something, you know, on average of like once a month for the Palau's. And I, I, I don't. I, I, I try to never be away from the church more than one weekend a month. So, yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Um, so you graciously said yes to coming on the podcast. And something that really struck me about you is that you have a very unique story of how you came to Christ. So I was wondering if you would share some of your journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up loosely in the church. Uh, and I say loosely, my mom came to faith when I was in third grade, but I, I had such a broken home life that, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I ever understood or grasped the concept of grace. Uh, by the time I was in high school, you know, I'd essentially rejected Christianity totally. It just didn't, it didn't resonate with me where I was at. And, uh, um, and I, I began to, you know, pursue, unfortunately, activities that would be quite con everything that you pray. You know, I was the kid that would go to youth group and you pray to God that your children never go to youth group with a kid like me because I would take drugs and go to church and like I just was not I was I was the the troubled the troubled kid you know that just I I went because you know 
generally I just wanted to meet girls. Uh, and uh, by the time I was by the time I was 17, I, I didn't go at all. And uh, I moved to Seattle in my when I was 20 to pursue, you know, to pursue music full time and was signed at 22 to Mercury Records uh, a month before I met my wife, Darcy. And uh, we fell in love. Uh, she moved to Seattle from Portland to be with me. And uh, we got married like a year after we met. And we thought, you know, she thought she was marrying a rock star. And I thought I was going to be a rock star. And three months after we got married, uh, I was dropped from my record label after my single failed at radio. And that kind of began the existential crisis at like 24 years old of just like everything that I thought mattered was like already coming to a lamentable end <laughs> and so uh, so I spent kind of the next two years you know just pursuing things and and uh, and getting kind of deeper into into pretty significant drug use I mean our band was really big in the northwest and so um, I got into a different group that we were all from very established bands and it was like this kind of fast movement upward but it was also a lot of really kind of dangerous lifestyle behavior um two of the members got hooked on heroin while we were while we were being courted by multiple record labels and it was at that point that i just began to say like i don't even know if i, I don't even like the music i'm making i'm just doing it to get signed and if we get signed my best friend's probably gonna die of an overdose because he's already living so recklessly and i was doing more and more hard drugs myself and i just like that's when i dars was on the verge of leaving me so I picked up a Bible one day that my mom gave me when I was 21. Um, and I started reading through it for the first time. And specifically, you know, I had enough of an up, upbringing that, you know, after loosely exploring, you know, Buddhism and some other things that fell flat for me, uh, I, I just kind of went back to my roots. But this time I was like, I want to, I want to understand who Jesus is. And so I started reading the Sermon on the Mount and uh, I kept rereading it. And specifically there's one verse that like hit me really in this weird way, in a way that actually like offended me and frustrated me and made me think that Jesus's teachings were impossible, which was, which they are. Uh, and it was the be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And I, I remember the first time I read it, I was so mad I wanted to throw my Bible out the window because I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Nobody's perfect. And it was after reading it a few times, there was like this, I remember it was like over a week period. It was like this light bulb kind of went on in my mind. And I realized that was the whole point is that we can't be and that he alone is. And I sought out a little church. Uh, I, I knew of a church that a photographer that had had photographed our band was a really zealous believer and uh and she, and she had invited me once to come to her calvary chapel church and and so i decided to give it a try and for the first six months i just sat in the back row and listened to the sermons be preached i hated the music uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was bad <laughs> i didn't i just didn't understand church music and it wasn't hymns and it wasn't pop music and it was just something altogether foreign to my my ears uh, and i i just remember the pastor finally discovering you know that i was a musician i i we, we met we became friends and he just kept encouraging me and trying to draw me in and uh, um, yeah, I, I feel like about a year into this sort of intellectual ascent uh, became 
actually a total surrender. Um, mm. And uh, Darcy didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, she was horrified that I had become a believer. Like she was already horrified by my behavior as a non-believer. And now <laughs> the first year I was even worse because now I felt guilty all the time, but I still wasn't experiencing victory. Mm. <laughs> so she's like, oh, she's like, at least before you were fun. Like, you know, so, <laughs> uh, and she had lost her only sibling to AIDS, um, mm. uh, who was a friend of mine actually um, at 24 years old. And, and so she just like, if there is a God, I don't want anything to do with him. But once I had like a real surrender, and it actually was through listening to a series of sermons by a man who preached here at Cannon Beach, um, Charles Price. He was the dean of Cape and Ray, Englishman, mm-hmm. um, and, and then became the lead pastor of People's Church in Toronto. Um, he gave a series of sermons here in 2002 um, on, uh, or in 2001, excuse me, um, on the... Um, on Romans one through five and, uh, you know, on the surrendered life. And that was when I listened to all, I was painting at the time and I, I would wear like a Walkman and listen to talk radio or listen to music. And my pastor said, listen to these sermons. I listened to all seven hours of those sermons in one day. And then I listened to all seven hours again the next day. And then I remember at the end of it, I got down my knees and I just began to weep. And I, I realized that I'd put my faith in Jesus kind of as a, bargain like i'll trust you if you make me famous and Mm -hmm. i discovered very quickly that jesus isn't in the business of co-planning our lives with us Uh, and i just laid everything down i went home i repented to my wife i called my band and i quit the band that evening i had just picked up management with this the this management company that was managing smash mouth and third eye blind and down in california and i called them and i quit wow I canceled my tour to LA and I went on a missionary trip to Russia instead. And that's when I wrote my first, my first worship song. It's the first time I led someone to the Lord. And that was when it was like something clicked. And that's when Darcy saw a legitimate change in me that kind of opened her up and she came to faith a year later, right? Like right after our son, Henry was born. So, yeah. And then she, and then we ended up in ministry. I started leading worship after that trip. Um, John, our pastor talked me into leading worship and I didn't know any better. And the first time I led worship, I, I introduced, I think eight new songs. I wrote six of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't know that you shouldn't do that. Um, and uh, yeah, we, uh, but really quickly kind of word began to spread. The owners of tooth and nail records were um, started attending the church and the, not before long, you know, this dream that I had died to, which was music, uh, was kind of given back to me in a new way. And so right before I went into ministry full time, I signed a record deal with Tooth and Nail to do a worship album. And uh, I moved to Spokane, took my first ministry job at Calvary Chapel, Spokane. And that's where I formed Telecast, which was um, the band that ended up taking off. I was there for a year before our record took off at Christian Radio. And I ended up touring around the world for 2003 and 2004. Wow. Yeah. And that's where I discovered my desire to preach <laughs> Wow! <laughs> because okay. I was, I was disturbed by the uh, lack of passion for Jesus among young people. And in the mu- Christian music industry was so weird. I mean, it's just like, a, it's like this strange, you know, like all alternative universe where kids that grew up in the church discovered it was much easier to be a rock star in the Christian music industry because the music is so subpar compared to what the world is producing. And so, you know, they weren't interested in 
you know, proclaiming Jesus, they were interested in using that platform as a means of being famous. And, and for me, it was like, I, that's all I had pursued. And I was the opposite. I'm like, I didn't even care. The music to me was now just a tool. And I just wanted to, I, you know, I was so zealous. I thought it was like Keith Green. I remember actually getting in, getting in trouble on tour with David Crowder for, um, uh, he was being managed by Louis Giglio and, uh, um, and those are big names uh, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Louis Giglio. Yeah. He is the, the founder of the passion movement, but he called, he called uh, my record label and complained that I was talking about Jesus too much. <laughs> Louis Giglio did or David yeah, Crowder? Louis Giglio did. Yeah. Oh he's my like, gosh. we didn't pay him to talk. We paid him to open with music. And I was like, and I, and I was so defiant. I was like, well, I won't if David Crowder will, but he won't. <laughs> so I'm going to keep talking about Jesus <laughs> until they kicked me <laughs> off the door, which they didn't. Wow. So there's so many things I want to ask about that. Lika, do you have any, I'm wondering, did you ever go to Amsterdam? Were you in tour there? I've never actually, actually I've never been to Amsterdam. I, I actually toured, I played in Norway, um, I, I, Germany and Norway and Iceland and New Zealand, Australia. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've never, I've never been to Amsterdam. I've never been to Sweden uh, or I've, I've, I've played in Spain too, but yeah. Wow. Do you have any questions? Cause I've got some. No. <laughs> you think? Okay. <laughs> so I guess you mentioned that you had a passion for preaching. You wanted to share with young people who weren't passionate. They were passionate about the music and becoming famous, but maybe not necessarily about Jesus. So mm-hmm. how did you, how did that begin? And, and what it's like to preach to millennials in maybe a city where most people don't uh, really care about Jesus. Yeah. Um, well, the way that I ended up becoming a preacher was that after a year on the road, I toured like 250 shows and I saw like every type of church from hyper charismatic and Pentecostal. I saw the difference of the church, like the church was so different in Russia, even in Europe. Um, because it was, because, you know, in Russia, you know, it had been a communist country for so long that like it was all new and so people that became believers really were counting the cost it was like you really had to be committed or you weren't going to survive i feel like it's even similar in europe where when you're in a truly post-christian society like that christians actually live more app more in a more robust and apostolic way where they're they're they have to be committed to one another because Mm -hmm. because they live in a culture that doesn't doesn't understand the gospel um but the benefit of being in a post-christian environment is that because people that means that you literally you're dealing with people that have no context they don't they don't know words like baptist or you know they they haven't heard of hillsong (laughs) they don't you know they don't and nor do they care but that doesn't mean that they aren't open in fact i would argue that they're actually they tend to be more open because uh, because I think that there is a longing in the human heart that scripture de- describes as you know God placing eternity in the heart of man that we're if we're made by God and for God that it would make sense that there's something in in a person who's made in the image though that image may be deeply marred there's still a desire to be connected with what it is that you were created for it's just unfortunately we displace that central longing 
upon all sorts of things that ultimately crush us and break our hearts. And so I, I think that in a city like Portland, what I found is the opposite of what people told me, which is that people would be hostile to the faith. And they would, you know, uh, I try to invite people to church every week. And in 11 years of leading Dora Pope, I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never had anyone be angry at me and yell at me or, you know, be hostile. I've had someone be smug, but I've never had anyone, you know, we're so afraid of being persecuted. And what we mean by persecution in America is people not liking us, <laughs> which is pretty pathetic <laughs> when you really think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, I, you know, when I toured after seeing what I saw was an increasing uh, departure from the centrality of the cross uh, a recognition of what I call low anthropology, that people are far more sinful than they like to admit, which is the very thing that qualifies us for grace. Uh, and that the gospel is not something that we earn. It's something, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, the scripture is about a God who seeks man, not vice versa. Uh, and, uh, and what I was troubled by was that I was seeing books like The Purpose Driven Life on Pulpits more often than I was seeing Bibles. And I saw kids whose youth group experience was more around, you know, being in a multi-million dollar, you know, mega church, you know, youth facility where it was gospel light and, you know, world heavy. And so I, that caused me to leave, leave touring. And uh, I, I went on staff at a church in California for two and a half years where I started preaching and kind of cut my teeth before moving back to the Northwest. And I actually worked with this guy, John Mark Comer, who's the pastor of Bridgetown. <laughs> I'm a big Austin. fan and anyone who listens to this knows it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So JM and I, um, we worked together for, I worked for him for two years. I was his worship pastor and, and one of the other teachers. And then I left, um, he was pastoring Solid Rock. I mean, he was the pastor of the largest suburban church in Oregon. And so um, I left that church to, I mean, I'm cut, I'm designed for urban living, you know? Yeah. And so I don't, I don't even, I didn't, I've never lived, you know, in the suburbs, like until I went into ministry in California in my life. It's like either small town or rural living or, or you know, the moment I turned, 18 I moved into the city you know so yeah. so yeah for me it was uh, the suburbs have always been a, a mystery uh, that offends all my that it draws out all my snobbery yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh. completely subjective and there's not a spiritual word in that statement so <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny is um I I tend to think of myself as a city person too but I married a, a man that I love from North Dakota, and uh, we live in rural Washington State. So that's been part of my surrender journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to quote something you said uh, when you were speaking in Cannon Beach a few weeks ago, because I thought mm -hmm. it was pretty profound. You said, I come down pretty hard on some, some of my friends who have kind of an obsessive desire to be appreciated by non-believers. You know, we got to work hard to make our faith palatable for modern sensibilities. And so they'll downplay certain aspects of Christianity that come across as a little weird. And I'm like, listen, the moment you think that there was a man who once walked on earth and who actually carried humanity's brokenness upon himself and a single act that actually changes history, past, present, and future, 
this cosmic event that literally changed the very orientation of creation itself is the moment you've already entered into. You can't downplay anything. You're already a weirdo. So just accept it. <laughs> so I totally, I totally I agree that. with that was, you. This is quite rich. It was very rich. <laughs> and it's funny because Lika and I have had this conversation about how I'm, I, I say I'm weird. She's like, I've never told you you're weird. And I said, it's okay. I, I understand I am. <laughs> right, right. Right, Lika, it's a true story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, But how do you tell people about the gospel then when it is so foreign and strange? How do you avoid becoming a people pleaser and trying to change it so it feels easier? Yeah, well, living peaceably among among all people, if possible, is very different than being a a person who's primarily concerned with people liking you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the gospel is offensive. I mean, it, it... the the response that we should be looking for when it comes to talking about Jesus is not neutrality. And Jesus never brought about a new, neutral response. People either loved him or they hated him. Period. Mm-hmm. Like what you know, he didn't. He he provoked a a, a polarization. Um, and I think that that's that's where I think much of modern evangelicalism has become quite weak. Is that you know even even the seeker sensitive movement then. Every form has its strengths and weaknesses, the, the, but the the idea that you know that we have to downplay the more the more offensive aspects of the faith. I, I'm not, and I, I think that I, I don't think it's right to talk to a non-believer. You know, you don't start off with you know issues around sexuality or you know you start with the cross and the crosses that's why i always say that the centrality of the cross is this is the return to the center you get your center right the the circumference will 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 follow Um, but if you try to start on the circumference of the christian faith like the the implications of the cross without ever talking about the cross uh, christianity becomes another another ladder uh, and, and as you, you probably could tell when you were here, uh, ladder theology is, I think, one of the great enemies of Christianity. It's, it's, the, it's the promotion of law. Um, and it's funny for those of us that hold tenaciously to a gospel of grace, we actually are more comfortable with giving people law than we are with, with mm-hmm. the pure gospel. Um, because we, we, we will say Jesus has come to save you from your sins, you can't save yourself. But the moment they say yes to Jesus, we immediately give them a bunch of rules that they then have to follow. And we put them in a place where they're just, they're more frustrated than they were when they were living as pagans. Um, And so I think that, you know, like the goal of the church should not be to exhaust its adherence with rules and regulations. Paul said, let no one judge you for your holidays or your, don't be caught up in silly, trivial, peripheral things. He's like, we preach Christ crucified. Like that's the thing that convicts. That's the thing that transforms. It's not driven by guilt and shame. That's been dealt with once and for all uh, through the cross. What it's what it what it brings is conviction, which leads to change and comfort. And so, um, so I just think that when you have when you have preachers that put an overemphasis on practice um, over over gospel because grace is grace grace is something that's so foreign i just read frederick beekner said he said even loving someone is actually grace and then he goes he goes let me ask you a question have you ever tried 
to love someone. And, uh, you know, we will say love is a choice. I'm like, uh, it's actually not something you can make happen. Like it's, I think that, that, uh, sustaining love, love begins when you fall in love with someone, there's hardly, hardly choice in it. It's like when I fell in love with Darcy, it was like, I saw her, I told her she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever met in my life. She fell for it because she knew <laughs> I meant it. And, uh, uh, and you know, we fell madly in love before we hardly knew anything about each other. The, the choice then that follows is, is uh, maintaining that mystery of that initial grace uh, and, and feeding into it so that that romance can actually stay alive. Um, and so, so I think that, that what I see as problematic right now is that there's an increasing movement toward emotional health I hate that conversation so much. Like, you know, the danger of sending, you know, um, uh, mal-shaped believers into the world. Uh, and I'm like, I'm like, you're always mal-shaped. Like everything <laughs> we do is mixture. You're all a bunch of weirdos. Like that's not the, like what we need is a, is a recklessness that is, that says, I recognize that I'm a mess. I just posted a poem by George Herbert the other day. He said, he says, we're all all a piece of crazy glass. And yet that glass becomes the very window into the perfection of grace when we're yielded to Jesus is essentially the essence of the poem. In spite of Mm -hmm. the foolishness of the vehicle, God continues to bring forth his gracious one-way love to the world through us, his His people but if we as a people put all of our focus on how to have our best life now or how to discipline ourselves so that we can have the greatest level of intimacy with Jesus possible you know when Paul tells Timothy to you know take heed to his own godliness he's he it's always in direct correspondence to his care for the community that he's been called to and so I think that that individualistic uh, approach to Christianity is is deeply problematic, and the quarantine is revealing that right now more than ever. That it is not good that man be alone. I'm beginning to question what is more dangerous: um, COVID, which is quite real. It's killed 152,000 people now in America. Is COVID more dangerous, or is the psychological um, impact of isolation um, going to actually take a greater toll um, on the world? And you know, time will tell on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lika and I have had some conversations about that too. Mm-hmm. About what this is costing people. I'm wondering how do you explain the gospel then um to someone who might be listening right now who feels really confused about what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. Would you mind just sharing briefly what is it? Yeah, I would think that the gospel uh in its essence uh it it begins with God, a God who created all that is, uh, and he created the universe uh, as a display of his glory, but also it's an outworking of his essence, which is love. Um, He placed humanity at the center of that creation, uh, and that we are his image bearers. It's the thing that makes us unique, uh, our ability to to know and be known, uh, our ability to contemplate our own existence. It sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. 
and it's what it means to be image bearers of God. But we obviously also look around the world and see that as beautiful as the world is, it isn't what it ought to be. Um, and what we as Christians believe is that, that, that the word we utilize for that is sin. I think that often non-believers think of sin as the little things you do wrong. You ask any non-believer what they think sin is and they'll, they'll tell you, you know, they'll, they'll have their own threshold for what is morality. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's, you know, it's sin to kill someone or it's sin to be racist. That's a common one right now. People are much more comfortable calling themselves racist than they are sinners at this, at this particular moment in history. Um, but what I would say is racism is, is, is an outworking of sin for sin is something much deeper than the little things we do wrong. Sin is an actual rebellion against God's sovereign rule over us as his as his creatures. And so as sin entered the world, that rebellion, it created a separation uh, where the image of God in man, though not destroyed, uh, was marred on every level. It's what theologians of old called total depravity. It doesn't mean everything you do is bad. It just means everything that you do, even the good things, has something wrong with it. <laughs> and so, uh, what this has done for us as human beings is it has rendered us impotent in our ability to reach God, to have a right relationship with God. Not only did it destroy our relationship with God, it destroyed our relationship with one another, and it ultimately destroyed our ability to even know ourselves. And this is why the world system of correcting the wrongs is fix yourself, then you can be in right relationship with others. And then you don't need God because. God is already within you. I mean, the humanistic worldview is that you are God, but a humanistic worldview leads to a materialistic worldview. And as Malcolm Mugridge wisely said, the only possible religion of a materialistic worldview is the religion of sex, <laughs> which is a whole nother conversation. Uh, and so I think that what we have is we have uh, a world that what the scripture declares is that the world is in darkness that humanity has has fallen short of the glory of God and what that means is that 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 image is so marred that we no longer uh, are aware of how close God is to us in spite of that and the beautiful thing about scripture is is that when we see the fall happen they you know then most people have heard of the story of Adam and Eve and the and in the garden and the temptation. And regardless of how you take that story, at the essence of it is this is that at some point in humanity's history, there was a point when the image bearers of God decided to define for themselves what is right and wrong. And in doing so, that is where death entered in. It says where sin entered in, death followed. And so God in his mercy from Genesis all the way to Revelation, which covers the entire scope of the Bible, uh, is a God who continually puts himself in front of humanity and its sinfulness because his, he, his, the scales tip toward mercy. Uh, we often think of God, I think Christians do a great disservice to God when they say that he is justice. Justice is not what he is. Justice is an attribute. The only attribute that is that actually speaks to God's essence is love and his justice serves his love. And when I say love, I mean a love that we can't truly comprehend because it's what we call grace. 
Um, it's a love that loves the unlovable and has literally nothing to do with us and everything to do with the very essence and nature of God. And God proves that love by dealing with the human dilemma of our separation and our broken relationship by entering into his own creation and the God who never changes, he changed. He became something he was not before, and that is man. And that's what we believe Jesus was, is that he was both God and man. And he lived the as the new representative man, the life that we are incapable of living. He showed us what right relationship with the Father looks like. He showed us what a spirit-filled life looks like. What offended people about Jesus wasn't so much that they saw God in the flesh. What offended people about Jesus as they saw man as God intended man to be. Um, and so he, as the perfect man, uh, actually did something outrageous. It's the central belief system of the, of the church. And that is that he, who knew no sin, that is that he never actually lived in rebellion against the father's rule, but in total surrender. And yet at the same time, taking into himself the frailty of human existence he played fair. He played by his own rules. Uh, he, who knew no sin, we're told became sin. And what we have is that in Jesus, God gives his only son uh, over to our sinfulness. And he takes the death that humanity has experienced due to sin into himself and conquers it fully um, by becoming the sacrifice in our place. On the cross of Calvary. So what we believe is that Jesus, that is through the spilling of the blood, and the, the mysteries in the blood, it says that the life is in the blood, that God literally died so that we as humans could live, that he took the guilt and the shame and the separation, which is in its essence what we as Christians believe hell is. It is, it is relational separation. Jesus took that into himself and atoned for the world's sinfulness, its rebellion. And as a new representative man, he actually becomes a trailblazer, not to use a word that describes our basketball team, but he's a <laughs> forerunner. He's, he goes before us and he makes a way for us back to God. Um, and it's not about us climbing a ladder. So what Christianity says is that it is the difference. Religion says, live like this and God will accept you. What Christianity says is God has accepted you in his son, Jesus. And this is what brings transformation to the life. And so the cross, Jesus died as the sin bearer of the world. But what we believe tenaciously, the other side of crucifixion is the other central aspect of, of our belief system, which is resurrection, that Jesus on the third day rose from the dead showing us the father's stamp of approval upon his perfect work, that he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve dealing with our sin once and for all and rose from the dead. And we're told that after showing himself to his followers for 40 days, that he ascended to the right hand of the father, that he returned to his place of glory for our belief is that God is one God revealed to us in three persons, father, son, and Holy spirit. And that he sent his Holy Spirit to come and dwell in those that put their faith in him. And so that we become now um, uh, the very conduits by which Jesus makes himself known to the world today. 
And so what I tell non-believers is this, is that you were created as an object of love by God who is not content to exist without you. Mm -hmm. And he has already declared a giant yes over all of creation in Jesus. The question is, is will you say yes to his yes? And the terrible possibility, what I call the impossible possibility, is that when the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of who Jesus is, that it is possible to say no to God's yes. And so the invitation is always the same. Jesus says, pick up your cross and come and follow me. So die to your desire to be your own God, because the worst master you'll ever face, the biggest enemy you'll ever face in life is yourself. <laughs> Release yourself and give Jesus the right to be responsible for you, because that's what he's created you for, is to be his servant. And being his servant actually is the only way that we can find the thing that humans are always striving for, which is freedom. And so, uh, so the invitation is come into a relationship with me, leave what you were worshiping before, because everybody worships. The question isn't, do I worship? The question is, is what do you worship? And you worship whatever it is you've given your heart to. And people worship their jobs and they worship their children and they worship their, they worship, they worship sex and they worship possessions and they can even worship nature. But it seems like Jesus often is the, the one who actually alone can handle our worship and has actually created us to become worshipers of him, which is a total allegiance to him, which, which is what actually brings us the greatest satisfaction. Uh, instead, we give our worship to all sorts of things that just continuously break our hearts. And so, um, so the gospel is good news. Uh, it's not good advice. It's not a list of things that, you know, are going to improve your life. It's, it's about saying yes to, uh, it's, it's about saying yes to something that has already happened. It's good news. It's, it's, it's not something you should do. It's, it's something you surrender to. <laughs> How would you encourage people who feel like they can't come to church or to God because of moral reasons, like for example, their sexuality or, homosexuality and then or hell like they feel something personal about it and, and they can't come to church how do you encourage them yeah well the the classic song is come as you are and they and the fact is is that if you're a sinner which you are <laughs> and that's the thing when the spirit reveals the truth of who jesus is and at the same time he at the same time reveals the fundamental brokenness, how lost we are. The, that's, why, that's why I always use AA as the perfect example of what a church service actually should look like. Because AA is a place where alcoholics recognize that they are helpless in their ability to overcome their addiction. They, they can't do it. Um, and their, their victory over it is actually recognizing, first and foremost, that they need help. And, and the only way they can get that help is to the willingness to confess it. Uh, and, and they confess it in the context of a community that does not judge them, but actually invites them in and their mutual confession of their own brokenness actually becomes uh, the means by which they begin to experience victory. And so, so I always say like, listen, if you're a sinner, you're, 
good news. You're exactly the person that Jesus died for. He didn't, he said, I didn't come to seek and save the righteous. We don't clean up our acts, which is what I tell people. I'm like, I'm like, come to Jesus. And like where Christians can go horribly wrong is that they begin to focus in on particular um, outworkings of the sin nature uh, instead of actually just realizing that sin is just every time we take our lives into our own hands and refuse to let God the right to be God in and through our lives. And that's why scripture says, what must I do then to be saved? Paul says it the most simply and concisely. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Because what are we confessing when we say Jesus is Lord? We're saying that I'm not. <laughs> and we're also saying if he's Lord, he must be alive. So we're surrendering not to a guy that died 2,000 years ago as a good teacher. We're surrendering to one who conquered death and is present and closer to you than you are to your own thoughts. And that I like to tell people that feel like they can't come to God because they're broken or stuck in sin or or whatever, or they're like, this is who I am. And I always just say, listen, on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. Uh, and that's the beauty of the gospel. And so, um, you know, I always say like, you know, my dad said that to me. He's like, I can't, I can't come to Jesus because, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And I, and I said, you know, he's like, I'm a chain smoker. I'm doing all these things. And I'm like, dad, I'm not even sure you should give up your alcohol. I think it would kill you. And I'm like, you really think that that's the thing? Like Jesus needs you to do this. I'm like, I'm not going to front load the gospel. It's not about what you stop doing so that Jesus will save you. What you have to stop doing is trying to hold on to some sort of semblance of autonomy. Really the essence of what the gospel is calling us to is a surrender of our autonomy. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Americans are defined by our great declaration of independence. I say as Christians, we should be driven by the exact opposite of that. It's a declaration of total dependence, <laughs> which alone actually brings us the freedom that we want. So, so I just say, you know, if you are a person who does not know Jesus, I just, I just say, encourage you, like, have you ever prayed the simple prayer, Jesus, show yourself to me, uh, reveal your love to me. Uh, we think that that's almost some sort of blasphemous thing. Like I always say that to believers, if you, if you don't know that Jesus loves you, you need to pray that he shows you how much he loves you because the Christian life is not just some intellectual ascent. It is meant to be experiential. Um, it's just that it, the experience needs to be grounded in the parameters of, of, of God as he's revealed himself to us through scripture and then illuminated by the Holy spirit. And so uh, the beautiful thing about about witness to non-believers, I think we think we need to argue people into heaven and we need to prove that they're, you know, we need to tear down their straw men or whatever. It's like, Jesus is quite clear. Nobody comes to me unless the spirit draws them. I, there's a supernatural work. People, people that say yes to Jesus almost never said yes to Jesus because someone explained atonement to them. <laughs> they, they accepted Jesus because they were lost and they needed someone to save them. <laughs> and so that, and that's, that's the invitation that I put forth. If you are lost, you're in good company uh, because there's a God who came specifically for you. 
you're the person that he came for and he loves you and he wants you to know him and to know freedom in him. And the only thing that I've ever seen break a non-believer down to tears every time I've seen someone come to faith is not me giving them a robust theological answer for something. It's just when I look them in the eyes and say, Jesus loves you. Karl Barth, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, maybe the greatest theologian since the Reformation, uh, said at the end of his life, after writing you know, 5 million words in his church dogmatics, uh, he said the most important thing he ever learned was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> so uh, so that, that I think is the, and that's the only thing that actually is compelling to the world anyway, is when they see believers actually living out the agape love that has truly been birthed in our hearts by the, by the Holy Spirit. So that's good. Um, when we were in Cannon Beach, uh, you had shared a little bit about, well, not just a little bit, I think it was one of your whole sermons, but about uh, the thieves on the cross and how mm -hmm. one rejected him by saying, if you are the son of God, prove yourself as if, if he were to do that, then he would believe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one of the things I think you said was that Jesus had nothing to say to a man who rejected him. And, right. Um, that's a really hard thing to, I, I don't know, for me, <laughs> to remember sometimes, like, that you can't prove, you're never going to say anything that's going to convince somebody of the gospel, right? If people don't want to believe, they won't. I mean, that's this, the, the, I mean, you remember when he tells the story of Lazarus, you know, he, one of the things that we, um, that, that we see when Jesus tells the story of, of Lazarus and the, um, and the rich man is that when the rich man finds himself in hell, he said, he tells, he, he tells um, Abraham to send, send Lazarus the beggar back to his family to warn them. And they said, they have the law and the prophets. If they will not believe that, they won't believe in a ghost. And I think that that's the thing. It's like Jesus could appear in the flesh. You know, people say, unless he shows himself, I won't believe. But I think that people have an unbelievable ability to, to disregard even the things that they can see. Um, and like, like we will, it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, human beings are unbelievably stubborn uh, we often are more comfortable believing lies than we are the truth so uh it's 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 you know it's part of the unfortunate sin nature and that and the reason that we don't need to argue people into the kingdom because it doesn't matter how much light you shine into the face of a person if they're blind mm -hmm. there has to be a supernatural revealing for it to actually even make sense like, I don't care how much light there is. If you're blind, you can't see it. <laughs> and so, so, you know, as I said, the light came into the world, but men preferred darkness. So and they too. didn't even, didn't even know G, the, that the light of the world was right before them. You know? So I guess two, two final questions. Lika's going to ask the final question, but I just want to follow up on that. Um, what advice would you give to maybe somebody who's listening, who uh, is listening to this podcast because they have seekers or skeptics or people who are discouraged in their faith? 
um, how how do they pray for that person? Because like you're saying, it it is a supernatural thing that opens the eyes. So yeah, how do you advise people to pray? Well, I, I always say one of the things we need to pray for and that you see the early church praying for, um, should we pray for the lost? Absolutely. But in Acts, what we see the church praying for is the courage to share with the lost. So we need to be a people that, that return to an evangelistic impulse, which is, is simply being witnesses. And to be a witness is just you're one who introduces people to the Jesus whom you know and love. One of the most compelling things is like, it's not the question of, you know, can I make someone believe what I believe? But I do think it's important to ask the question is, do the people you talk with believe that you believe what you're telling them? <laughs> if you can become compelling that you believe it. I mean, have you, when you meet someone that truly has been touched by Jesus and they talk about it, it's like, it's pretty compelling because they see, they see that there's something that has captured this person. I can't explain what that is. And, and that's, I've always said that my greatest gift uh, as a pastor is not, you know, some sort of intellectual capacity or, or, you know, uh, you know, persuasive rhetoric. I think the, you know, I'm uneducated. The, my greatest, uh, my, my greatest gift is that I actually really love Jesus. And so when I talk about it, it's not hard to talk about someone you love. <laughs> and so, because I know, I know what I've been saved from. And I, I, you know, it's the one benefit of, you know, being a raging pagan until I was 27 is that I know, I know what, what uh, a life of autonomy actually is. And it's, it's not that awesome. <laughs> and it's quite damaging. And I know what it's like to, to taste grace and to feel that the shackles and the weight of that burden be removed and to feel that freedom that comes um, from being alive in Christ. And, you know, once you drink from that, well, it's like, you know, it's weird that we can drift from it, but it's hard. It's almost impossible to stay away from it for any length of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so though it's easy to drift because drifting requires no effort. Uh, it, it, it's hard to drift for long if you've really tasted the living Christ. And so, uh, so I think that as for non, for believers wanting to see their friends come to faith, I do think that we have to ask the question is like, have you, have you experienced the, the empowerment of the Holy spirit where in the spirit's primary role in our, in our lives is not, you know, signs and wonders, but it, he's a, he's a missionary spirit who is continuously witnessing to the truth of who Jesus is. And it says that he will bring to remembrance the things that I have said, and he will point the world to me. Um, and so, so I think that when we pray for people, it's like we pray that God, hey, God would give us the boldness and the authenticity to talk with them, to help us to be attuned with the sensitivity of the spirit, when to speak and when to listen, um, to help us to um, communicate in, in very natural ways um, that God loves people. I always tell not, tell believers, like when you talk with non-believers, ask if you can pray for them. It, rarely will people turn down prayer. It's weird. Um, tell people that you do pray for them. Invite them to church with you. I mean, Lika's smiling because those are my tactics. <laughs> she knows. That's what she does to me. I am an unbeliever and that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's the, it's inviting people 
to like come and see what I believe. Like the way that most people come to faith the door of hope is that it's filled with young people, you know, it's filled with people your age. Like that's, you know, and when you see your peers, like experiencing something that we all want, which is some kind of fulfillment and, and, and you feel accepted and loved in spite of your brokenness, um, uh, that it becomes a safe place to then uh, I find people open themselves up to the gospel in new ways. And, and I don't believe that we have to compromise our orthodoxy, um, you know, which I see churches doing all the time. They try to c- compromise certain aspects of their faith because they're worried it's offensive. The whole gospel is offensive because um, the, the gospel says, you know, says, you actually are literally an absolute mess and so broken <laughs> that you can't save yourself. You know, it's like what it, I, I kept sharing that, uh, um, that Eugene Peterson uh, quote, he says, God looks down from heaven to see if he can find one woman or one or one man that isn't an idiot. And he comes <laughs> up with a string of zeros. Like that's what Dwarf Hope is. I always like to tell, because I'm an encourager, I like to say, listen, <laughs> You're, you're not a bigger loser than God already knows you are. And that's okay, because that's, that's exactly who Jesus came to save. <laughs> and so, welcome to the club. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I just think, pray for the lost, but pray also that God gives you the confidence to live out your faith in a naturally supernatural way. Mm. Okay. Lee has a final question, but I forgot to ask you. If people want to know more about your music or your ministry, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at doorofhopepdx.org, uh, and you can follow me on Instagram at josh.alexander.white, uh, and that has a link to, I mean, and then I've got a Spotify page. There's a, a famous black blues singer from Maryland from the 20s named Josh White, so him and I, you know, share 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 the Spotify world, um, but, uh, but yeah, most of my records are available, so either under telecast or josh white but um but i've released like i think six albums in the last uh 11 years or no more than that seven albums and i have a new one coming out on humble beast in next month cool so and i and i'm i'm working on my first book called the good death so awesome. yeah well the finding uh something real podcast is about a journey towards a restoration or redemption eternity at this authenticity and love of those four gifts that we can find in Jesus Christ, which of those stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Yeah, I think what stands out the most is love. I I think that everything that Jesus did was motivated by love and those that have been truly born again, Paul says, it's the love of Christ that constrains or compels us. And uh, um, because grace grace is love coming at you and at the same time has nothing to do with you uh that grace is unfair because jesus offers his love to the most broken and evil individual who's ever lived as much as he offers his love to the most the the most morally upright person who's ever lived it doesn't matter if it's hitler or mother Teresa. jesus loves the world and uh and he proved that love through his laying down of his life for you and i and that's 
that's the thing that changes life. And I'm not talking about that weak, permissive love of the world that's fickle and, and contingent upon our ability to perform. I'm talking about a love that recklessly pursues, a holy love that literally consumes everything in the beloved um, until only that which is beautiful remains. And, uh, and so I say that love is the most important and the essential aspect of, of who God is. Hmm. Love it. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. for giving hey, up boxing. For, and yeah, <laughs> that's a I gave up boxing. I know I did. I did. It's all right. Uh, preaching, the, preaching the gospel is a bit of boxing. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're thankful you took the time yeah. and until next time. Thank you friend for listening to the finding something real podcast. This is a grace-filled, Christ-centered podcast for those who are wandering, wondering, or simply needing to be encouraged in their faith journeys. I hope you'll come back next week when I'll most likely be sharing a conversation with another guest about their journey towards finding something real. And if you're on Instagram, please come find me. On Fridays, I share Instagram Live podcast recaps at 11.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you're over there on the gram, you can join me for some fun live awkwardness. <laughs> and finally, if you're someone who was encouraged by today's podcast and you have friends who would benefit from hearing the story shared here, would you go ahead and share? You can do that by hitting subscribe, leaving a review, or sharing a link. Your telling others about this podcast helps bring other people along. And finally, just so you know, if you only remember one thing about this podcast, I hope it is this. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus Christ loves you, and a real relationship with Him is a treasure trove of restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. He's offering that gift to you today. I pray you believe it.